you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How does someone who hates the idea of skydiving end up in a career as an aerial stuntman? And what exactly do you have to do to lose your pilot's license three times? What is the value of risk? In the arena of life, is it actually more dangerous to play it safe? Tune in today to hear the answers to these and other questions. Happy New Year, Innovation Nation! This is a clean slate, a new page, a fresh start. What are you going to do with your year? Today, we're going to talk to someone who has had a rich and exciting life. But first, we want to say thank you to those of you who have subscribed and written a review for us in iTunes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, open up iTunes, click on the iTunes store, and search for Tabletop Inventing. Three words, Tabletop Inventing. On the iTunes podcast page, click the subscribe button and then open the ratings and reviews tab and rate us. Five stars is always exciting for us, but be honest about your impressions. If you've already listened to the podcast, leave us a review. If you leave us a review, we'll give you a shout out right here on the podcast. We really do enjoy hearing your thoughts and new listeners will use your feedback to help decide whether to listen to the podcast. It's hard to believe that we're now on our 17th episode and it's 2015. We've already got more great interviews lined up this month, so stay tuned. But as we begin a new year, many of us are thinking about how to set ourselves up for a better year than last year. Perhaps you have some health goals or want to earn more money. Perhaps you want to improve your marriage or spend time with the kids. Whatever the case, those intentions will require some changes, and those changes will involve risk. You tuned into the right episode. Our guest today is Troy Hartman, the man with a jetpack. Troy has an amazing story, and it's peppered with little choices that involved risks. Definitely check out the show notes page today to see Troy's jetpack videos. They are totally worth watching. They're amazing. Anyway, back on track here. We showed one particular video uh, from Troy on, in all of our inventors boot camps last summer in 2014 because he did such a great job describing the emotions and responses to risk. Let's tune in to hear what this engineer and pilot turned stuntman has to say about risk. So our guest today is Troy Hartman and I first uh, learned about Troy from a YouTube video that I saw that just... Uh, Almost made me levitate. It was it was an awesome video, and we'll link up to that in the show notes. Uh, Troy started off at the Air Force Academy, and from there got into skydiving, and from skydiving got into a, a niche sport uh, known as sky surfing, and that eventually led to uh, spending time uh, in the X Games and competing. And from that experience, he got a lot more recognition and eventually had the opportunity to become an aerial stuntman. 
Uh, Troy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself from maybe some other angles? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for that intro. <laughs> Pretty cool. Um, yeah, I've, I was really all about flying when I was a kid, and it started with model airplanes. So I was as much interested in building and designing and tinkering uh, with the model airplanes as I was with flying them. And those became my sort of my favorite things growing up, tinkering and, and flying. And, and, it, and it led to me wanting to, well, naturally become an aeronautical engineer and a pilot. And I was just so narrowly focused on doing just that. And I made it, you know, and it made it my number one goal to, you know, pursue those two things. And it made the most sense to go to the Air Force Academy, uh, which is difficult to get into. But I was very driven, very motivated. And I went for it. And, you know, one thing led to the other, as you mentioned, there was some of the things I've done. But, yeah, I'm I'm as much a engineer at heart as I am, uh, you know, a stuntman or a pilot. And I, I really love that, you know, the tinkering side of things. So I remember uh, having some of those model airplanes and I didn't go into flying, et cetera. I actually went off into the science and engineering side. But I remember the little airplanes, the balsa wood airplanes with the wind-up rubber bands. Did you ever have one of those? Oh, sure. That would have been the first one I had. Yeah, those were great. <laughs> so did you eventually graduate to radio-controlled airplanes or anything more complex than that, or mostly hand-built stuff that you could make in the garage? No, it, it started with, uh, like you said, the rubber band airplanes, and then, and then the next were the Cox. Uh, you probably remember the Cox airplanes that you had on a line, and you would just you could just go in a circle with it. Yeah, I remember uh, those. And then, then it was model airplanes, and believe it or not, this was in the 80s, uh, I actually went into the model helicopters, the, the remote-controlled helicopters, which wow. back, back then they were pretty much impossible to fly. They didn't have gyro stabilization. They didn't have any of that stuff. They were, And uh, the only reason I had the opportunity to do that was that my dad wanted to learn how to fly them too. But, of course, he bought one. He financed that. And he quickly realized there was no way he was ever going to learn to fly it. So he just he just left that to me. He helped build it and then he, he let me fly it. And, you know, I didn't I, I just crashed it is all I did. But, you know, I learned some of the basics. So, yeah, I, I was really into the RC models. So how did you end up in the Air Force other than just being interested in flying? You know, that was my dad's influence. You know, he knew that I wanted to fly and that I, you know, I wanted to become an aeronautical engineer. Not, not, not that I really understood what an aeronautical engineer did. I just knew that whatever I did, I wanted it to be just airplanes. I wanted to be fully immersed in flying and that was it. I, I pushed everything else outside of my, you know, I just said, nope, it'll, it'll only be this. And, and it was pretty obvious. Well, to my dad, it was obvious. He said, well, then you want to go to the Air Force Academy. That's what you need to do. And luckily, he, he set me on that, you know, that path. And, and it, early, it was ninth grade or something. And that's when you really need to start preparing uh, to get into one of the academies because, you're, you know, your grades and extracurricular activities and sports and all the stuff you got to do to um, to get in. And I, I really just was 100 percent focused on it. And I managed to get in, which was, a, you know, a huge task in itself. And, yeah, that was that was what really opened up a lot of doors into uh, everything that I ended up doing. Wow, that's impressive because there is quite a few uh, requirements coming into that. And it's impressive that you stayed focused all the way through that in high school. High school is not one of those not known for its ability to keep uh, teenagers attention. <laughs> no, I, and believe me, I I it was a battle. It was not easy because I was uh, distracted by plenty of other things, 
and I did have to have my, my parents remind me every now and then, you know, they, they said, you know, you can still have fun. You can still do this other stuff, but just keep this goal, you know, make it your priority, you know, and it, it was a, a lot of balancing, a lot of balancing. So did you start your skydiving when you were in the academy or was that something that, that you picked up later? I did start my skydiving in the academy and I probably never would have done it otherwise because it, it was something that scared me. I, there was no way. I wasn't even on my radar to jump out of an airplane. <laughs> These other cadets at the academy, you had two different choices, two different tracks you could take. Uh, as a sophomore, you could go into the sky, you could do the skydiving training or you could do the flying training. And naturally, I did the flying training, but we would go down on the bus. We'd go down to the flying field every day with the skydivers because we shared the same field and everything. And uh, I got to know a couple of these guys, and they would tell their stories. And, you know, a lot of them were horror stories. (laughs) (laughs) My parachute opened wrong, or I had a bad leg. And I thought, man, forget it. And then they said, but you should do it. You know, you should definitely try it. And I was like, no way, no way. You're going to tell me that story and then tell me I should try it? (laughs) So. I had one one guy there that one buddy of mine that was just determined to get me to try it. And uh, we did it off base. We actually went to a a skydiving club. He kind of tricked me, to be honest. He told me we were doing something else. And we just (laughs) showed up at this airport in the middle of nowhere. And I said, oh, you got to be kidding me. You're going to do this to me? And I'm not one to turn down a dare. So I did it. And you know what? I just I fell in love with it. It was so different than what it was. I had the same idea of what it was going to be, you know, that most people have. Oh, my stomach's going to come up into my throat. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to feel like I'm falling. It's going to be this death tumble thing. And, you know, it's not that. It's not that at all. It's you're flying. You're out there actually flying on a this cushion of air. And it's it's a really, really neat experience. That's interesting. So basically your friend tricked you into taking a risk. But looking back, you would probably tell us that that risk was worth taking. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. It, it was life-changing. It, it, it opened up my eyes. I mean, I would have gone on, had I not done that, I would have gone on to, you know, a full flying career, which would have been just as great. And I wouldn't have, I would not have known what I was missing, so to speak. But, you know, I was a natural with skydiving. I, I just picked it up really quickly. And it was something that I was, I was meant to do. Now that I, you know, look back on what I did with the sport, truly I was meant to do it. And so, yes, I'm very thankful that he tricked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that our listeners are going to uh, ask us this question. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and ask because in the video, I know they're going to watch the video because we, we said the video is amazing. And in the video, you talk about uh, crashing an airplane. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about how that worked out? <laughs> Oh boy. Well, it didn't work out real well, but actually, you know, looking, looking back in a lot of ways, it it, it worked out exactly how it it was supposed to, you know, I was young to be flying airplanes, um, 19. And, you know, I, I think I, well, I started flying airplanes, you know, when I was 13, my dad was a private pilot and we flew everywhere and, you know, he would let me take the controls. So, uh, you know, at 19 years old, you can't be expected to have the best judgment. <laughs> and, you know, to be handed over this airplane that I could I could check out at any time I wanted and go out and do things. Of course, I was going to get myself, you know, I was going to start being a little mischievous. I mean, that's just that's the, that was at least in my nature. And uh, yeah, I pushed it. You know, I, I was all about flying low. You know, I was all about, you know. You know, I was doing this flying under power lines and flying under bridges and 
you know, buzzing cars on the highway and scaring cattle and all this other <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> and, it, you know, it caught up to me. I, I got too low flying through a, you know, a rancher's field or something. And there was all this stuff out there. We're buzzing all this stuff. And I just, I, I hit something. I just, you know, luckily we didn't crash right there, but it took one of the wheels off of the airplane. And I had to do a, a crash landing basically uh, with the airplane. And we survived, which we're so fortunate, you know, uh, it was one of those things I look back and say, wow, we were just handed a, another chance uh, in life. And of course, it was devastating for me to get thrown out of the academy. But it, you know, again, it opened up other doors. I said, well, now I'm going to fully pursue the skydiving because my, my pilot career was kind of, eh, I felt like it had just sort of ended right there because uh, it's such a bad strike uh, on my record. So I went after the skydiving and, you know, it, it turned out for the better. I mean, it, it, it was sort of, you know, you, you realize looking back at these things that happen to you in life, you say, wow, that was that was really meant to be. Interesting. So have you managed to keep up pilot's license over the years or did you let that go when you went toward the skydiving? Uh, I No, I've kept my um, licenses up. I've continued to add ratings and, and all that. Of course, I've had my I've had my license taken away three times. And that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure we should ask you why. <laughs> uh, well, the, the one was the incident. I had my license taken away for the, you know, the incident at the academy. And then I, I had it taken away again when I a stunt for Discovery. Uh, just, we, we did this show. Stunt Junkies was the name of the show. And I performed the, uh, the stunt, you know, the airplane to airplane transfer. I, you've probably seen my video where I do it. I jump from one airplane and skydive down to another one. But we did it again. Uh, this time I was flying the airplane. And, um, you know, we put this drogue on the back of the plane to allow it to dive straight down. And it, it's, it's a pretty radical maneuver to put an airplane in, into a straight down dive so that it can fall at the same speed as a skydiver. Um, anyway, we, we did the stunt su successfully, but somebody from the FAA was watching and, uh, it, you know, I had my name right there. I wasn't hiding anything in the TV program and they, they came after me and yeah, they, they got me on that one. So, you know, um, I think every pilot who's really active and they tend to try to push the envelope a little bit with flying, they, I think they've all had a couple of dings on their record. You know, it, it seems like that, that, you know, guys who have been flying for a long time, they all have some similar stories. Interesting. Well, so tell us what sky surfing is. Cause I, you said that earlier and I, I got a picture in my head, but I'm not sure that the picture is accurate. And I, I'll confess that I've seen quite a few different things in the X Games, but I'm just not sure I've seen sky surfing. Yeah, it's interesting. If we were having this conversation 15 years ago, you know, anybody would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, sky surfing, because it actually was this mainstream as far as the event, the, the, the being on television and in commercials and stuff like that. Everybody knew what it, what it was because it was it was on TV constantly and the sport just kind of, you know, it just fizzled out. Um, there wasn't enough interest and it was a weather dependent sport for ESPN and they had the hardest time, you know, scheduling out our competitions around weather and all that. So but it was something that um, in, in, in its basic form, you put on a snowboard, uh, jump out of the airplane and you use the force of the, the air which is a lot of force. You, you know, you're falling at 100 plus miles per hour 
And if you think about it, if you're driving down the freeway and you put your hand out the car, uh, say you're doing 75 and you put your hand out the car, out, out or out the window of your car, you know, there's a lot of force on your hand. You, you know, you feel that. Now imagine sticking a snowboard out that window and doing 100 miles per hour. That is that is what you're contending with 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 sky surfing. So, but there's so much energy that you get from that force that you can do all these tricks. You can do you know these helicopters and spins and flips and 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 you have a cameraman that goes out with you and it's a 50 second routine. You know you have 50 seconds to do as much as you can and and it's an artistic you know uh, artistic sort of show that you put on for judges. And that's that's what it is in essence. Interesting. So basically, the the snowboard is a great big lever for doing cool tricks. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when you're learning, it's it's just a something that's trying to kill you. You know, this board <laughs> it, it, it wants to spin you so fast, and it wants to take you out of control. But once you harness that, you know, potential energy that you have with the, with the board, then you can start doing some amazing things with it. Yeah, but it is. It's uh, just a big rudder that you have out there to to do these things. Do you still do that for fun? No. <laughs> no, no. I haven't put a board on my feet and jumped out of a plane in, in at least 10 years. It's just, it's too taxing. It's too demanding. I, I might never do it again, to be honest. <laughs> so, so it really does take a lot of physical stamina. I hadn't thought about how much effort it takes. Yeah, it really does. It's, um, it's just putting the, uh, just putting the board on in the airplane can use up all of your energy because you have to imagine this airplane is climbing and so it's at this angle and you're trying to put this board on, you're standing up and you have to, you know, you have to do all this cinching down and hooking things up and, uh, oh, it's just exhausting. It's really an exhausting thing. By the time you even, or you're ready to go out of the plane, you're, you're already sort of, you know, breathing heavily. And because you're at 12,000 feet, 10 to 12,000 feet where you don't, you don't have the oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's very demanding. So it's a, it's a, it's a young guy sport for sure. I guess I'd never thought about the fact that you're at 12,000 feet or what yeah. is, what is the ceiling for skydiving? I'm not even sure I know. Well, you know, I think I would say that the ceiling, well, you know, this guy that just jumped from what? 140,000 <laughs> yeah, feet. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that counts. I'm talking for like real, like normal people without an oxygen mask kind of stuff. Okay. Typically 14,000 feet without oxygen. And then, and then with oxygen, jumpers will go up. Uh, you know, they'll do these special jumps where they, they have to do some training, but they'll go up as high as 35,000 feet, you know, which is a very specialized thing. You have to wear the proper equipment and all that. But 14,000 feet is your, your typical ceiling for, you know, just general sport jumping. Wow, that, that really would tax you if you're not used to that kind of exertion on a regular basis of 14,000 feet. Interesting. Yeah. So what kinds of stunts have you done uh, throughout your career as an aerial stuntman? I've done a lot of uh, stunts. Um, geez, I, I mean, they they run the whole gamut from you know jumping off of a you know a truck that's uh, you know going down a, a bridge and you know base jumping off of this moving truck to you know uh, lighting my parachute on fire, <laughs> uh, jumping plane to plane, the plane to plane transfer, or uh, landing on a train. That was a that was a really interesting one. Landing a parachute on the back of a moving train. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, boy, you know, we did a lot. I got pushed out of the back of a tailgate aircraft sitting in a Suzuki Samurai, you know, completely enclosed in this this car in freefall and, you know, had to make my way out. 
space jumping, a lot of base jumping stuff, you know, jumping out of, I jumped out of a, uh, a window through a window of a high rise building, uh, on the 44th floor, jumped out this window. It was candy glass. It was that stunt glass, but it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty dramatic, you know, to, to throw myself through a window <laughs> with a parachute. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So my, my wife doesn't want me to ask you this question, but I'm, I'm, I'm just dying to ask you this question. Do you, or do you know anyone who's done this, the, the stunt where they throw the parachute out the window and, or out the bat, the plane and chase it? Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. We That has been done. Um, not that way. The, the reason that wouldn't work is because a parachute, if you throw that thing out by itself, it's going to fall so slow that you would never have a chance. You would you would just go right by it. You'd never have a chance of slowing down. But we've there's two stunts that have been done that are pretty impressive. The first is a, uh, a guy goes out of the airplane carrying a parachute, and the other guy you know, flies up and grabs it and hooks in. Then he has a parachute that he just deploys that he's not even hooked into. He's not even, he just has his, his wrists uh, with a body harness. You know, he has this body harness with an attachment point that comes from near his wrist and he just hooks in to the parachute, just somewhere on the parachute. And then the other guy that was holding it for him, he deploys the parachute for him. So this guy's just hanging underneath the harness. Uh, that was That was impressive. And then recently we've had some guys that are, uh, jumping out without a parachute and they have somebody come down that's wearing, you know, a, uh, like a tandem size parachute and, and they, they catch up to the guy and hook into him and then, you know, open up the parachute and they come down together. So those are the two variations I would not do either. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You just, you just totally dashed all my views of this. Cause man, I guess I've seen all of the, uh, all of the, the videos that, that, that must not be real. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. But yeah. The throwing the parachute out and catching it just, unless I'm missing something that's been done, as far as I know, that is, that's, it would only be possible if you had the thing weighted down with a bunch of, you know, lead rock or something inside of it. But yeah, as far as I know, nobody has done that one. You know what? The physicist in me should have known better than that because uh, the density is significantly different, probably than a human density. And I should have I should have thought about that. All right. Yes. So let's shift gears just for a couple of minutes here at the uh, at the end, and let me ask you a couple of questions. So you've been uh, the academic route and got into the Air Force Academy. In today's environment, the average teenager can go on the internet and look up an answer and there's a lot that you can learn on the internet and it it's it's possible to fake your way through an education if you're if you're good you still have to be smart but the internet can make you look a lot smarter in that environment what what does it mean to be educated do you think you know that's a great question and that's something that my wife and I talk about all the time with you know the paradigm has just changed so much everything is there and somebody that is studious, that wants to learn, they can probably, you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but they can probably get an even better education by delving in themselves and really just just learning all of these these topics. And, you know, that, that takes somebody that's really motivated because, you know, you're, you're going to move at the pace of a classroom, you know, uh, as, as an entire classroom. Uh, so those students that, that are really fast learners and that want to get through the material more quickly, that they're going to, they're going to be better off probably getting a lot of this stuff done online on their own. I, I think, because I know all of the material is out there 
And I've seen some incredible uh, websites. You know, I've even gone to some of these websites about physics, you know, when I, I've just been searching for an answer to something. And I, I find these guys that have these, these you know, YouTube shows or whatever, these uh, lessons that they do and they teach this stuff. So, you know, my thought on it is is that as far as college and school and, and, and doing all of that and, you know, because obviously there's there's this argument that you don't need a college degree anymore to make it in the world. And I, I you know, I do believe to, to a big degree that is true. Uh, but what I got out of school was the accountability, you know, and that's a big part of life is, is being accountable for your actions and having deadlines and having, you know, things that you need to get accomplished on, on somebody else's schedule. That's what's going to, you know, you're going to eventually have to deal with that in life and college and school, you know, you're, you're forced, you know, to have homework assignments, tests, projects, things that you have to be accountable for. Uh, whereas if you do this stuff on your own and go online, you know, sure, you might be able to learn it all, but you're, you're doing it on your own schedule. So I think there's a lot of value in the classroom and college type environment for that one aspect. Interesting. I, I like I liked your answer about accountability because that's something we haven't heard come up previously, but it is something that's, that I've considered a lot is if you could learn online, you know, how much would you learn before you ran into the issue of maybe not being fully motivated to get it done? Exactly. So, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Next question is a little more philosophical, but it's related to the last question. We touched on it just a little bit. But we, we always like to ask, what is the purpose of an education? And you've had a broad range of experience you know, through your life and, pro and been educated in many different ways. Thinking through both a formalized education and an informal education, what, what is the purpose of an education? You know, it is, it's many things. I think for one, it is uh, learning how to learn. Just the, the ability to pick up a subject, truly understand and comprehend it, and then apply it to real life. You know, with every different, different subject of study, there are different formulas for applying, you know, and, and learning these things. And as you take more classes or study more subjects or you start to learn how to go through this process. It's, it's learning how to learn. And we're, we're constantly learning in life. It, it doesn't end with college. You, you know, you learn more in life, obviously, than you'll ever learn in school. And if you have learned the process of digesting a new subject, whether it's parenting, whether it's, you know, whatever you, you, you decide to take on, if you can be efficient about getting the knowledge, truly comprehending it, and then applying it properly to where it's needed to solve your problems, that, that's, that's just so valuable. And I think that's what it's all about with education, uh, if that makes sense. No, that makes, that makes complete sense. We've got many answers to that question, but a lot of it comes back to some form of uh, self-efficacy, learning what you need to learn to succeed for your personal goals, um, some people feel that the purpose of an education is to open up possibilities to people who might not otherwise have had the possibilities. There's just a plethora of reasons why you know people might get educated. So I, I, I don't see any of these necessarily as as wrong. And you you have a unique experience here where you went and got a formal education, but then you managed to take some informal part of it 
and turn that into a life. And that in itself, I, I think, was an education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you what, more than anything, the college degree, it gave me a lot of confidence, if nothing else. I may not have used any of the material that I learned. I've forgotten 90% of it, and that's just how it is. But the confidence I had coming out of college, getting the degree, I, you know, I can learn anything. I realized I can learn anything because I went into college just as, you know, scared and, and you know, worried that I wasn't going to be able to understand the subjects and keep up. Just like I don't know anybody that goes into college not being worried about that. And um, so I proved something to myself and, and that goes a long way. Wow. I'd had to think hard about my college experience um, and what I think that that uh, pulled out, but I think I would have to agree with you that there's a, a deep sense of confidence that comes from knowing that you could do that. You made it through. Absolutely. So to wrap up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your jetpack and if you're still doing anything with that and describe a little bit in the video, uh, maybe expand on that a little bit and tell us about that experience. Yeah, the jetpack was, um, that was really an accident. Um, which I think some of the greatest innovations are. They're, they're things that they sort of spur out of another project and that they weren't even the original idea. You know, my original plan was to uh, chase after Eve Rossi, his, his jet wing, you know. I've been fascinated by what he's been doing since um, 2003 or, you know, when he put out his first video. I said, that is something I'd like to pursue. Being a skydiver, it made sense. So, it was only it was about 2008 when I finally had some money uh, to be able to throw at the project. And so we built this wing and I got these jet engines and there were so many things I had to design on the jet wing. I, you know, I had to design the wing, then I had to just design the parachute system, the harness. I had to figure out how to use these jet engines. They're fairly complicated and they're frightening. They're so big and powerful that, you know, my biggest fear was putting these these things on next to me, you know, jumping out of an airplane and having these gigantic bombs, <laughs> you know, they have that kind of energy, <laughs> I mean, they really do. So it was in the process of building the wing, I said, you know, and I was losing sleep. I was losing a lot of sleep uh, uh, about the idea of running these engines next to me for the first time. And I said, you know, I've got to go out, I've got to build something that allows me to run these on my body, close to my body, something. So I just went ahead and started designing a, a backpack, and I, my sole purpose was to build something that I could strap on real tight so that it would stay stable on me and have some protection between myself and the jet engines for heat and for the event that one of them were to blow up or fall apart or what. I just don't, I don't know what they do. I don't even know how common that is, but I said if this thing explodes, I want to have some protection. So I built this thing with, with those design aspects there. And um, so I, once I had the thing built, you know, the next thing that came to mind during that process was, you know, I also have to make sure I can get these things to start and operate at high altitude because that's something I know that Eve, he was having a lot of troubles with, you know, he'd go up, he, had, he can only go up to 8,000 feet or something because anything higher in the airplane, when he went to start the engines, they, they, they wouldn't start. So I had this idea. It was winter, and um, I said, you know, I'm going to drive up to Mammoth. My parents, I'm from Mammoth, and my parents have a house up there. I said, I'm going to go up to Mammoth with this thing that I just built. And I actually did test it at sea level. The first thing I did was I, I did put it on my back and start it up. 
which was that was a big deal. I mean, that was huge. I I was so scared. <laughs> you know, I had two fire extinguishers. And, anyway, it, it worked. It started on my back. It didn't kill me. It, I shut them down, and the whole thing worked. I did that one or two times, and then I said, I've, I've got to take this up to high altitude and do that again and make sure that they're still going to work at high altitude. Did the test up there, and then the, I thought, you know, you know, wow, I'm up here in the snow. I'm a skier. I've been skiing my whole life. <laughs> yeah, you see where this is going. Right? <laughs> um, and it was the easiest thing to do to just add a pair of skis because I had already built the thing. I was in Mammoth. There was snow, and I just said, I'm going to do this. And I, told, you know, I told my dad. He was so unhappy about the idea. He, he, you know, he said, no. He said, you need to rethink this. And I said, no. I said, I've tested it. It works. It's I can give it throttle and I can still stay in control of it. It's not burning me. I said, let's do this. And I, you know, I had a GoPro and some other cameras and I talked my dad into going out there with me. And and it was really cool. It was the first big, you know, just starting the thing on my back was big, you know, and, and but now I was using it on skis and it actually had so much power. I could not believe immediately how much speed I, I was I was picking up. It was the coolest thing. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, I, I was thinking I'm in the future. First pass going down this, you know, um, snowy road. I was thinking to myself, wow, I am in the future. I am creating the future right now because no one else has done this. And it was just an amazing feeling. It was so cool. Um, but like I touched on in the jetpack video, just before you do these things, you're really questioning it too. You're yeah. thinking, God, I'm a, am I about to just make the news? I'm, you know, am I about to make... <laughs> for the <laughs> wrong know? reasons? So, exactly. So you're just, you're, you're really questioning if what you're doing, you know, and it is, you, you're nervous and you, you, you're a little sick to your stomach and you start thinking, I'm just a fool. I'm out here, you know, because most of the time when you're testing something new, it doesn't go smoothly. You, you know, the back of my car, I've got tools and I've got, fuel line snipped and replacing all this. I've got just junk everywhere because it's like so, you know, garage invention, you know, and you're looking at this mess saying, this doesn't look professional at all. How is it going to work? You know, if, if I've got this mess, how, but you know, it, and it does, you know, when you, when you eventually you can make it work, I've made it work. And, you know, the next thing after that was, wow, let's figure out a way I can fly with this. And, um, and so it's been just this, it's kind of, I'm kind of letting it lead me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just seeing what the next idea is. And I've, I've built, I've, you know, refined the jetpack. I've done some more, some more work to it. I've made it a lot more slick, a lot more integrated. And I'm not exactly sure what the next step is other than I've just been improving it. And, and I think it'll come to me at some point. I think it'll, it'll come to me and I'll, I'll go for the next iteration. Interesting. So I, I just have to say that while, while, as you're saying all of this, you know, my wheels just turn. I just can't turn it off. And I'm I'm a little bit of a thrill seeker myself. Not had as much experience at it as you have, but I'm still a little bit of a thrill seeker. And all of that sounds like a lot of fun to me. Oh, it, it is. It, it's it's really neat. I mean, find, you know, discovering new things. It, it, it's one thing to see, you know, something else that's been done, even if it's only been done once and you're the second person to do it. That's still you know, to be a pioneer is really, really cool. But this is the first time I've done something that was uniquely my own. No one else has done it. That is a really neat feeling. And like I said, I'd never really experienced it before, and I'm, and I'm really enjoying it. Wow. I, I don't think we could end better than that. So I think we're just going to stop right there. And awesome. I'm going to ask you to stay on for just a minute after we wrap everything up. But 
Troy, thank you so much for taking time to talk to our audience. As I said before, you are famous because that video is one of those videos that we use to uh, help our teenagers in our uh, maker classes understand the, the range of emotion and the high that you can get from doing something that's uniquely your own and that you can be really proud of. And just watching you in that video, it just you can see it, you can feel it, it's, it's tangible, you can almost taste it, it's amazing. Uh, that's great. I love to hear that. I love to hear that it, it does inspire people um, because more than anything, I just wanted people to be able to, you know, see what I'm feeling and understand what I'm feeling. And it sounds like, you know, you sure do with it. So that's that's great. Thank you, Troy. Uh, we will certainly be in touch. And thank you again for taking a few minutes to talk to our audience. We'll certainly hook up your page in the show notes. Is there anything, uh, is there any way you'd like our audience to get in touch with you in particular, any particular channels that are the best? Oh, you know, emails are great. I, I respond to every email. So if somebody wants to just go th straight through my website, click click on my email, That's that always works great for me. Thank you, Troy. I appreciate you taking a few minutes, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been great. And now today's great inventor secret, taking calculated risks. A ship in harbor is safe. But that is not what ships are for. This quote by John A. Shedd, a writer from the 1920s, encapsulates something we already know. Risks are all around us, and they usually stand between us and a rich life. Love is a risk. Starting a business is a risk. Trusting someone else is always a risk. In fact, most new experiences involve risk. Yet risk is something many of us avoid. We like the safe road. We normally get up at the same time, stumble out of bed, stub our toe on the toys left in the hall, start up the coffee maker, pour a glass, and resolutely head into the same day we had yesterday, only with a new number on the calendar. This approach to life is safe. We know what comes next. We never have to worry about the unknown or fearsome opportunities. In our warm little cocoon, we pass the hours days, and years. But what if we are a butterfly? What if life as a worm isn't our lot? Since I'm not a theologian or a holy man, I, I can't address destiny and the meaning of life. But I do like to entertain the question, what if? So, back to my original question. What if you are really a butterfly? Does life as a worm really fit? Do you ever have dreams of flying while you're in this safe little cocoon? I know I did. A few years ago, I was visiting a friend because his house was not far from a conference I was attending. At breakfast, before heading out to the conference, he and I chatted about a couple of ideas I had for a business. I had dreamed for years and years about starting a business. Someday. I was never really willing to take the first step, though. So my ideas remained warm, comfy dreams of sugar plums in my head. My friend listened intently to both of my plans and told me, I think the first one's just a hobby, but the second one, that could be a business. I smiled and nodded and left for the conference, content with my cool idea. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was really just a pipe dream. Sometimes our friends push us to take risks, like Troy's friend who tricked him into skydiving for the first time. Well. 
My friend gave me a shove that day bigger than I've ever had. When I came back from the conference, he looked up from his computer and said, I wrote you a business plan. I was shocked. A business plan? That morning it had only been an idea. He showed me the plan and I began to see the real possibilities. His numbers were a little off, but that was easy to fix. Later that night, we had a good first draft. I looked at the plan and began to calculate. We could really make this work. My internal risk meter began to rise. And instead of becoming a butterfly, I started getting butterflies in my stomach. This was a risky idea. Then my friend proposed my first risk. He said, Steve, tomorrow I want you to call my friend Hal. You should ask him to look over your business plan and give you some feedback. If he says yes, send him the plan and a check. He won't ask for any compensation, but it won't feel like you're taking advantage of him as much if you compensate him for looking it over. How much should I send him, I asked. Probably $500. It's a good round number, and it's about the right amount for someone in his position. Who is Hal, anyway, I asked. My friend David proceeded to tell me Hal's given name, and my jaw hit the floor. This guy was a big deal. I knew who this guy was, at least by name. And since I'm not into name dropping, just suffice it to say, most of you would recognize the name, too. Those butterflies in my stomach suddenly became cast iron butterflies and started to get bangs and claws. I told my friend I would call, but my resolve had suddenly flagged more than a little. The next day, I polished the business plan. I looked up the numbers. I compared other competitors' products. I checked the overall market. I did everything except call Hal. <laughs> to be honest, I was scared to death to call and even more scared that Hal might say yes. 24 hours earlier, I was in my safe cocoon, but now I had a choice. I knew I could go back to sleep in my safe cocoon and never breathe another word about this to anyone. Just take the blue pill, and I could return to my safe life. Or, I could make that phone call I was putting off. I worked all day on the business plan, more because I was scared to make the call than for lack of great content in the plan. Finally, I knew I couldn't put it off anymore. It was 4 p.m. I could make the call or go back to sleep. The risk stood right in front of me. It loomed like an iceberg waiting for my titanic business plan. I walked out onto David's back porch because I didn't really want him to hear me make the call. I was a little embarrassed at my sad state of mind. Then before I could take back the action, I flung my fingers at the numbers on the keypad. The risk had begun. The dice rolled. And now I waited. I didn't have to wait long. A cheerful woman's voice answered. I was sure I'd have to navigate two or three layers of gatekeepers before I actually got to Hal. In fact, I wasn't even sure Hal was in town. Ah, he might be in Beijing or Bali or the Bahamas. Could I please speak to Hal, I asked. What happened next was the most surreal experience I've ever had. Instead of saying, Hal's with a client right now, can I take a message? Or, I'm sorry, Hal is out of the office. Or, <laughs> what I really expected, sir, Hal is a busy man and doesn't have time to talk to little people like you. No, what that cheerful lady actually said was, sure, may I ask who's calling? I was dumbfounded for a second, and I was sure that she had sensed my bad case of nerves straight through the phone line. Yes, my name is Steve, and I'm a friend of David and Cherie, who are hiking buddies with Hal.
I heard my voice say. Somehow, it just slipped out of my brain without my being able to stop it. Then, without a moment's hesitation, I heard a soft buzz, and then, This is Hal. How can I help you? It all happened so fast that my brain was scrambling to catch up. I stammered something about being a friend of David and Cherie, and then my brain processed two things. First, the guy on the other end of the phone had just responded as if he'd been waiting for my call all day and could hardly contain his excitement at being able to speak with me. Second, it was just a phone call. Ah, so I relaxed a bit, and I told Hal my story, and asked if he'd look up my plan. He told me it'd probably take about a week to fit it in, but he'd be glad to look it over. Then, all too quickly, the call was over. That little phone call started a chain of events I can only describe as mythical. There have been ogres and giants, unicorns and princesses. And as with all myths, there have been difficulties mixed with fantastic rewards. We've been able to do things in the past few years I never dreamed possible for me. Those were things that happened to other people. However, I realized the simple truth about the fantastic things you hear about on the news and in magazines. All those people are just like you and me. America was founded on the principle that all men are created equal, and I found that truth to be very reliable. Hal is truly very human. He's funny and curious and likes other people, but what sets him apart from the crowd is that he's been willing to take calculated risks, and that he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. As we learn more about innovation and education, we must remember every single new idea started out as a risk. While innovating, there's always the possibility of failure, of pain, and occasionally of losing something important. We aren't advocating risk for its own sake, that would be foolish. But risk for the sake of learning or growing or changing the world is usually worth the price. The risks should be calculated in a way ahead of time. I mean, always ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? Usually the worst thing that isn't really that bad. But occasionally the worst thing is very bad. Jim Collins calls those kinds of risks fatal risks. But risk doesn't have to be mindless. Risk can be well thought out and carefully targeted. Innovation is spoken in the language of risk. Young minds need to be educated and led by those who know how to risk intelligently. Yet as educators, we just need to remember the young do not know enough to be prudent and therefore they attempt the impossible and achieve it generation after generation, as the novelist Pearl S. Buck has said. Tabletop inventing has been on quite a ride. But it all started with a small risk, making a phone call. At that point, I had a choice, call or don't call. Most risks start out just that way. As the poet Robert Frost described, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I'm going to end today's episode by giving perspectives on risk from successful innovators. These are some of my favorite quotes on the subject. Play the game for more than you can afford to lose. Only then will you learn the game. That's from the Bulldog of the British Isles himself, Winston Churchill. If you are not willing to risk the unusual, you'll have to settle for the ordinary. That's from the great business coach Jim Rohn. 
I believe in getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. <laughs> That's a funny quote from uh, the theologian G.K. Chesterton. And finally, from the king of comedy himself, Jim Carrey. You might not expect this from such a funny guy, but he had to face enormous risks to make it as one of America's most humorous actors. He said, It is better to risk starving to death than surrender. If you give up on your dreams, what's left? Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm -hmm.